Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. My name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President here, and I direct our Europe program. And I don't know, it always feels like the first fall event that we host, it feels like that back-to-school moment when we get to welcome you all back uh, to CSIS. And uh, uh, I think we have a fantastic uh, fall opener for you to think about the future of blockchain. There are two things that I love the most about my job and working here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The first thing is that I learn something new every day. And I'm very excited to learn a lot about the future of blockchain, something I know uh, very little about, but I've got my notebook ready and I'm, I'm looking forward to writing and learning a lot today from uh, four exceptionally knowledgeable people. The second thing I really love about CSIS is that we get to work with great partners and great people. and we, our partnership with the Embassy of Liechtenstein, Ambassador Kurt Yeager, Mike Keller, uh, they provide uh, a, an idea and some support for us to host really interesting conversations like the one we have. So I thank you so much for that great partnership. So again, this brings those two things I love together the most, learning something new, working with great partners and people. I've tried to be a good student and read some articles about the future of blockchain. We were saying in the back, I think I've got some terms but I'm not entirely sure, um, and uh, we are going to try to uh, learn together today. Speaking of great partners and great people, the Europe program is partnering with uh, my colleague Bill Reinch, who is the Shoal Chair and leads our international business and trade program. Nothing going on in the trade space the last 18 months, um, but Bill is really known as one of the trade guys on our very famous podcast, so you get the trade guy in person. So again, welcome back to school, ready to learn, pencils out, notebooks at the ready. Bill Reinch, take it away. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Heather. Uh, I appreciate everything you said. You made one mistake. There are not four experts at the table. There are three experts at the table uh, and, and one person who gets to ask questions. Um, I am aware that there's probably a variation of, uh, or variability of, of knowledge and expertise in this subject in the audience. Uh, some of you I, I know know nothing, uh, and I imagine some of you know quite a bit, so we're going to do our best to speak to everyone. We've also uh, resolved, probably without success, but we intend to maintain this as an acronym-free zone and to uh, <clears throat> talk about the, uh, not, not uh, you know, uh, obscure, obscure everything we're saying in abbreviations and letters. We will see what happens. Um, this is a very interesting issue. I'm uh, excited that the Embassy of Liechtenstein, who, which, uh, and, and the government which, uh, wants to be a leader in this, uh, in this sector, particularly in financial services, has uh, uh, decided that this would be a good topic and that they're uh, supporting the event. And we have one of their speakers whom I'll introduce in, in just a moment uh, on that. Uh, I should say in a shameless act of self-promotion, this is also an issue that the uh, Scholl Chair is studying, and we will be issuing a report on, on blockchain. It's uh, basically it's non-currency applications and, and challenges, uh, probably later this month. And so uh, we'll do that with an event. And uh, since you all have revealed your addresses by signing up for this, you'll probably be hearing from us again. Uh, and I hope we can uh, suck you in to yet another event on, on blockchain when we re release that report. Uh, today, we're fortunate to have um, three people who have spent a good deal of time on the issue and really are 
experts uh, that are going to uh, address it from various perspectives. And our format is going to be that they're each going to make some uh, brief remarks of their own. Then I'm going to uh, ask them some softball questions, or at least I think they're softball questions, and we'll have a little conversation, and then we'll turn it over to you. And we'll have Q&A uh, until um, time has expired. So um, plot your questions and think about it. And as Heather said, get out your notebooks and, and pencils. Uh, our speakers are uh, as follows. Uh, Patrick Bont, who is a member of the executive board of the Financial Market Authority of the government of Liechtenstein and head of the banking division and fintech practice leader. Prior to doing that, he worked as director and head of business management in the legal and compliance functions of UBS Corporate Center in Switzerland and UBS Investment Bank in Hong Kong. Uh, next to him is Daniel Gorfine, who is the uh, who has served as the Commodity Futures Trading Co see no acronyms Commodity Futures Trading Commission's Chief Innovation Officer and head of their lab CFTC uh, since uh, July of last year. That makes him responsible for coordinating with international regulatory bodies, other U.S. regulators, as well as uh, the Capitol Hill, to discuss best practices around implementing digital and regulatory frameworks and approaches for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. He's also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown, where he teaches fintech law and policy. And finally, next to him, we have Matthew Welling, who's an attorney at uh, Kroll and Mooring in their privacy and cybersecurity practice and is involved in their blockchain and digital ledger technology practice, otherwise known as DLT. He regularly counsels clients on cybersecurity preparedness, data breaches, and investigations and issues related to uh, emerging technologies. Prior to uh, joining the law firm, he was a software developer and management consultant with IBM and Accenture, so he knows this issue from different perspectives, not just the legal one. So with that, uh, you guys can sit there and talk or step up here as, as you wish, and we'll begin with Patrick. Thank you very much, Bill. <clears throat> okay, I stay here. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me here. Uh, I feel very honored. Uh, that's, a, that's a great chance uh, for me to present to you what is happening in Liechtenstein uh, with regards to blockchain technology. Um, as some introductory remarks, I would like to go into three different uh, points. First of all, I would like to um, explain describe what is happening in Liechtenstein, why do we look into that um, new development or that new technology, um, how, how have we been approached uh, by the market, and second, uh, what is the view of the financial market supervisor and regulator on this, and third, um, I would like to give you some insights into uh, our uh, new blockchain law that was um, presented to the public just, um, I think, 10 days ago, and to share some thoughts uh, with you on that. Well, uh, first of all, uh, why blockchain and Liechtenstein? Um, the government of Liechtenstein started an innovation initiative uh, maybe four years ago, um, and they said we have to improve uh, the frame, the legal framework, um, the, the conditions for the entrepreneurs and, and the corporates um, for innovation or innovative businesses. 
And um, this innovation initiative had several uh, measures that have been implemented, and one of these measures was, was um, the so-called regulatory lab, which uh, is uh, located at the Financial Market Authority. The regulatory lab is um, something like a sandbox. You might have heard about that from other regulators. Uh, it's, it's a specialized team that looks into new business models and uh, market developments and helps the entrepreneurs um, to find or to find the right way into the regulatory framework of the financial market uh, regulation, which is uh, quite complex and, 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 and large. Um, as soon as we started that, that new lab or regulatory lab, that team, um, we got some requests uh, from the fintech area, of fintech uh, entrepreneurs, and at the beginning it was like crowdfunding, peer-to-peer -peer lending, robo-advice, things like that. So not very new, just old-style financial services in the, in the framework of, of new technologies. Um, but maybe two years ago, uh, some tech guys, if I can name them like this, um, contacted us and asked for a meeting. And uh, we invited them, and they told us, uh, listen, guys, we would like, would like to, uh, to do an ICO. And we said, what the hell is an ICO? Uh, and they started to explain to us <clears throat> what an ICO is, an initial coin offering. They explained that they plan to fund their venture, their project, through issuance of so-called tokens. And um, a token is kind of a digital voucher or a digital share of the company. And uh, we said, well, that's very new to us. We have to look into it. Um, there is uh, no precedence. We never had that before. And so our uh, experts, our lawyers, started to, to dig into the law and looking, how, how, can we, how can we qualify that ICO? And finally, we thought, well, yeah, we have a solution for that. Um, we can put that into our uh, legal framework. Uh, and we asked these guys, because it was all very new, to work together with us very closely. Um, the deal was they explain us the technology, the developments in the market, and we explain them the regulation. And um, so that ICO was one of the most successful ICOs uh, on the globe in, uh, in 2017. It was a company named Eternity. It's a blockchain development um, uh, company that uh, develops a bl blockchain technology uh, of the newest generation. And uh, this has been very successful uh, cooperation with, uh, with, with that company and others later on. Um, we gained a not, lot of knowledge in, inside our authority about uh, that topic. And um, in some way, people heard about that. And uh, we got uh, lots and lots and, uh, uh, of requests from, from, uh, from similar um, entrepreneurs. So that's, that was our way into the blockchain topic as a financial market authority. Now, what is our view as a regulator, our legal view on, on this topic? And this is, uh, this is very complicated, I have to say, um, because all our financial markets laws have been developed. They entered into force maybe 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, but they all have a like a centralized and analog view on the financial market, uh, financial services industry. They're not made for decentralized 
financial um, services and pro products. And so we started to to try to qualify these these different um, fine instruments, I would, would would call them, like cryptocurrencies or tokens. And just to give you a very brief overview, um, these days. Um, we look at cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether as commodities. So they're not financial instruments so far. Why is that? Um, Liechtenstein is a member of the European Economic Area and therefore has to implement European Union law. Uh, so the financial market law of the European Union is also the financial market law of Liechtenstein. And there is the so-called European Banking Authority um, that at the moment sits in London, um, will move to Paris after the Brexit. And the guys at the, at the EBA, the European Banking Authority, they issued an opinion on cryptocurrencies and qualified it as private money or commodities. So we follow that, um, that opinion of the, of the European Banking Authority. But that's only one part of the story. That's cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ether, Ripple, you name it. Um, then we looked at the tokens, tokens that are issued in these ICOs that are used to raise fund. And there it became more complex because these tokens all had very different characteristics. Um, there were tokens that looked like securities, like a share in a company. There were tokens that looked like a mean of payment. And there were tokens that looked like a voucher just to buy something or to exchange the voucher against a good a service, whatever. And these three categories actually are now our classification boxes we put the ICOs in. So we have the ICOs that issue tokens that we look at as, as securities and being securities, it, uh, they, they are obviously uh, um, uh, fall under the financial market law and are regulated. Um, no question about that. Um, we look at utility tokens as utilities, as commodities. So uh, if somebody issues a token that is a voucher to use a service to buy something, um, that's not in scope of the financial market law. And the most complex category, the payment tokens, they are in between. They can be either securities or not by financial market law regulated tokens. I'm sure we talk about that later on a bit more, but just to give you an idea um, how we think about these tokens and, and, and look at them. Another topic we looked into was uh, anti-money laundering. Um, obviously, uh, we read about all these big cases uh, like Silk Road and, and other um, uh, yeah, um, fraud schemes, Ponzi schemes. And we said, well, um, it's, it's a high risk for the reputation of the financial market, the reputation of the, of the country, and we have to protect that reputation. Therefore, we really want all these providers um, to apply the, the, the KYC um, procedures and to, and to follow the, the AML uh, anti-money laundering um, regulations. Um, this uh, has proven to be very, very uh, helpful because we built kind of a hurdle for these ICOs we don't want to have in our uh, financial market. 
So that's the, the view from the regulator. Um, finally, uh, I, I'd like to tell you a bit about the, the blockchain law. Now, when we realize that there is so much demand for for legal certainty, for information about that new technology and how to legally use it for businesses. Um, the, the government uh, took that um, as, a, as, a, as a very strategic and important um, development and, and uh, started a, a working group of experts. Um, and the, this, this working group um, had the mission to, to draft a blockchain law. Now, what I have to say is blockchain law is the, the, like the short name of the law, and um, it is not only about blockchain because there are dif different technologies that um, have, have more or less the same purpose, but uh, to keep it easy, just name it blockchain law. Um, the blockchain law is not a financial market law. Um, it is actually outside of that financial market regulation. Why is that? Um, because, as I said, we have to implement uh, that European legislation in the financial market, uh, and, um, and therefore we, we, we cannot change financial market uh, legislation or rules by ourselves. This has to be done in, 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 in Brussels uh, with the European Union. Uh, but we can regulate everything around that on a national basis. And I, I, was, I was part of that working group, and uh, when we started to discuss, we said, well, we have to find a legal framework for the future um, of the token economy. Uh, an economy where maybe everything can be tokenized and traded over technologies, true technologies like the blockchain technology. And finally, the, the major outcomes or major points in these laws are we had to define what a token is. This was the most compl complicated and, and uh, difficult uh, thing we, we had to discuss. What is a token? And we defined the token <clears throat> in the end as kind of a container. A token is a bearer instrument to, that can bear certain rights, for example, um, values, whatever you want to to that container. Uh, that also means that we had to change property law, um, for example, or, or the, the business law. Um, but that was, that was uh, at the heart, or that is at the heart of that regulation. So token, in our definition, is a con container. And you can put the right into that container, the right you have for a security, for a service, for a good, whatever. And then we said, well, Blockchain means also you don't need an intermediary for that transactions. You can, you, that's one of the main purposes uh, or, or features of, of blockchain technology. You don't need a bank or somebody who is um, uh, looking into all the transaction, confirming them. You can really tran uh, transfer tokens from peer to peer. So there will be new intermediaries in that token economy. And we try to define certain roles um, in, in the blockchain law. And I don't want to go into detail for every role, but one role obviously was the, the one, or the, 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 the provider that um, generates the token technically, the one that issues the token could be the same, could be a different one. Um, but also providers like, and I think that's the most interesting role in that blockchain law, we call it the validator. Somebody has to make the link 
between the virtual world of blockchain and tokens and the physical world. If you tokenize your car, uh, your bicycle, your cat, whatever, somebody has to grant to, to, to make sure that your cat is there, that the car that is tokenized in that token really is of a red color and is really two years old, whatever. And so we, we, we define the role of that validator that makes sure that everything that is written in that token is also true in, in the physical world. Um, so this is, is, is the core, the heart of that, uh, that blockchain law. And uh, beside that, there were some other points to, to, um, to find a solution to. Uh, and one is also uh, anti-money laundering. Um, even if these tokens are not means of payment or securities, we thought there is a risk to, um, to misuse that abuse, to make abuse of that, uh, that system and of these tokens. So uh, we also implemented AML rules for all kinds of tokens uh, in, in, in the law. We, we stated that um, because um, uh, we think um, the risk of, of uh, the risk for the reputation of the financial market and the economies is too high to not have certain thresholds there. And uh, obviously, uh, it should be a consumer protection uh, also uh, to, to have to, so so everybody can be sure that his the tokens he buys are from a reliable uh, source, a legal source. So that's. The very new development, the uh, blockchain law was uh, released into the public consult consultation uh, process um, now. Um, that consultation phase goes till November, I think, and it most probably will enter into force mid next year. Um, we got great response from a lot of uh, European countries that are interested in our approach, and we will also be able to present it to, um, to the, the European Union uh, very soon. Uh, that should have Hopefully, gave you an, 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 an overview on uh, on our view on, on blockchain technology and the latest developments in Liechtenstein. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Great, thank you very much. And I, I think I'm going to have to explain to my dog this evening that he may be tokenized in the near future. Uh, it'll be quite a conversation. Um, anyway, thank you all for for having me. Uh, glad to join the panel. I'm Daniel Gorfine at the uh, CFTC. And in my opening remarks, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Lab CFTC, which is our fintech uh, technology and innovation initiative. And then I'll go into a little bit more detail as to how the agency thinks about and is engaging with various uh, aspects of blockchain and more broadly uh, distributed ledger technology. And I'll at least give you my sense of how we, we think about that landscape. So Lab CFTC was launched uh, the summer of last year, and it was really the result of our commission and, and more specifically our chairman um, seeing the increasing digitization and, and the increasing impact of technology in financial markets. Um, there was a view that we needed to make sure that we as an agency were keeping pace with changes. Uh, so we were launched last summer. Our, our stated mission is to help facilitate market-enhancing fintech innovation, help to inform policy at the commission, and make sure that as a regulator we have the right regulatory and technological tools and understanding to keep up with change. Uh, we have three primary work streams that we pursue to execute on that mission. The first one is around engagement, and that sounds like a simple notion, but the idea is that we want to make sure as a regulator we have an open door and we're willing to have conversations with innovators to learn more about what it is that they're doing. 
To us, an innovator could be a true startup. It may be an established technology company, a regulated financial institution, anybody who's using technology to do innovative things in our markets, we're willing to sit down and, and, and talk to them. Kind of a dual value proposition in those types of engagement meetings. For us, we get a better sense of what's actually happening in the market so we can stay ahead of the curve. There's that, that common saying, you know, skate to where the puck is heading. Um, so that allows us not to get caught by surprise, uh, by surprise in terms of what's actually happening. On the flip side, those who meet with us, if they're a true startup, they may want to try to get a sense of the regulatory landscape. There are many regulators in Washington, I, I call it the alphabet soup. Um, and if we can help to explain how our rule sets may apply to particular activities, that can save an innovator time and resources. Others may come in and actually point out areas where there's ambiguity or friction in existing rules that didn't contemplate the modern economy that we have today, um, and we're willing to entertain those types of uh, questions or issues that are raised. The second prong is once we've identified promising technologies, we want to think about how we can help to facilitate them, incorporate them as an agency, um, and maybe test and better understand those types of technologies. Various ways to do that. We, one thing that we're uh, planning to do at, our, at the CFTC is launch these innovation competitions. We recently crowdsourced ideas around what our first topic should be. This gets us heavily into the, the realm of reg tech, thinking about things like machine readable and machine executable rule books. Um, so we, we want to explore the types of tools we have in that capacity. The third prong is really around internal education to make sure that we're sharing what we're learning with staff in the commission, um, as well as collaborating with other domestic and international regulators. Uh, so we spend a lot of time hearing about best practices and learning what else is working well in the world. So that's a high level overview of, of Lab CFTC and how we're trying to broadly engage with FinTech. Now, specifically with, with respect to DLT, and I'm gonna step back you know, even, even more broadly in this term, Distributed ledger technology, and then you'll hear the term blockchain thrown around a lot, cryptocurrencies, and I'm going to try to give at least the way that, that we think about this, this broad umbrella. And, and you'll have to forgive me for the pure technologists in the room. I'm going to, I'm going to give a very, very, very simple explanation of DLT at the outset, um, recognizing that there's a lot of nuance, and then I'll explain how we view this kind of across a spectrum. At a very high level, you can think of a, dis a distributed ledger technology as almost being akin to you know, a, a shared Google Doc. I, I quickly, by a show of hands, how many people have used a, a, a shared Google Doc before? And it's great, right? Because you're able to access the document at the same time, perhaps, as somebody else is accessing the document. If you're making changes, that's viewed real time by everybody else who has access to the document. So if we were to say, you know, let's just take everybody in this room and it looks like a really trustworthy group. So if it were just us that were members of a, of a shared Google Doc, maybe it's an Excel file. So now I'm confusing companies, but that's okay. Um, let's say we're going to use an Excel document as our shared ledger. So from now on, all payments that we make, we're going to track real time in this shared ledger. So if I want to send Patrick... $20 or 20 what have you, whatever the, the, the currency may be, we can denote that in the, in the ledger. And everybody sees that, plus 20, minus 20 real time. That's a really efficient way to track transactions because you're, you've disintermediated the need to have a, a bank that traditionally would verify that I actually had the money and that the money has now been moved into Patrick's account. So at a very, very, and I know this is overly simplistic, but at a very simple level, Distributed ledger technology stands for the proposition that we can share, distribute a, a, a ledger, all use it kind of in real time to be able to track transactions. 
Now imagine we open up this ledger to the entire world. So everybody's going to participate on this ledger. Now we may not trust that everybody who comes on there and says plus 20, minus 20 is a trustworthy uh, individual or actually is who they say they are. Now we need to figure out a way to actually validate and verify that transactions are legitimate and that they're being properly entered into the ledger. This is where you get the introduction of things like cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin at one level serves as an economic incentive for these independent computers around the world that you've heard about, mining computers and validators. It's an economic incentive for them to help with validating, and we can go into more detail later how they're doing that, but, but to actually validate that a transaction is legitimate and that it's being properly recorded in a ledger so that now there can be some trust in the transaction, even though this, be, this could be between individuals who don't know each other and you, and you have the entire public participating. So at a very, very basic level, you can, you can see this world of DLT across a spectrum. On the one hand, you might have private, closed, permissioned ledger systems amongst trusted participants that can do things in a more efficient way. On the other end of the spectrum, you have these open public blockchains that frequently have cryptocurrency serving as an incentive to part for, for validators to participate and maintain the ledger system. And then there's all kinds of activity that's taking place across the spectrum. Some of it starts to look a little bit more public, have more of the cryptography and other types of things that are typically associated with public blockchains, and some of it may be more happening in this private permission space. Okay, so how does the CFTC engage with all of this? In the private permissioned uh, realm of, of DLT and blockchain, what we're interested in is how market participants might think about using these types of systems as kind of a next generation of market in, capital market infrastructure. So a very, very basic example is you can imagine if market participants used a shared system where they standardize data formats and fields, there may be a way for the regulator, the CFTC, to be resident as a node within that system and instead of these individual market participants having to batch data and send it to us, kind of a, a push system, we could have real-time access to standardized data and information. So you can just imagine that as really kind of enhancing capital market infrastructure. So that's an area that we're interested. On the other end of the spectrum, I talked about cryptocurrencies, things like Bitcoin. So in 2015, the CFTC determined that certain virtual currencies like Bitcoin are commodities, similar to what you heard Patrick saying. Once we make that determination, that triggers at the CFTC the Commodities Exchange Act. So then we're going to be interested in things that fall under our jurisdiction. If there are futures products or derivatives products predicated on a commodity, those are regulated by the CFTC. So at the end of 2017, there was the self-certification and launch of Bitcoin futures. And what that means is we would regulate those direct products and we would regulate the exchanges that facilitate trade in those types of products. We also have enforcement jurisdiction if there's fraud or manipulation in the interstate commerce or interstate commerce involving commodities. So we don't, and this is an, imp an important distinction, we don't have direct regulatory oversight over cash markets or trading in a commodity, but we do have kind of backward-looking enforcement jurisdiction if there's fraud or manipulation. That's why you've seen the CFTC bring certain enforcement actions involving fraud and manipulation uh, in, in the cryptocurrency space. And I can go into more detail, you know, a little bit later about the U.S. regulatory framework, but at a high level, that's how, how we think about it. 
Uh, so Lab CFTC has been very active in terms of engaging with innovators. We published at the end of last year a primer on virtual currencies to kind of set out here's how we view the technology, here's why we care in terms of jurisdiction, here are particular risks and challenges that may be associated, and we help to support aspects of the commission including our, our Office of Customer Education and Outreach that's been publishing many investor advisories around risks associated with uh, investments in the crypto space. So I'll stop there because I think we can unpack and go deeper into a lot of these areas. Okay, thank you. Uh, Matt? Sure. Um, thank you and uh, appreciate you all being here. Um, as a lawyer, I'll start with the over-lawyered uh, comment. All, all my uh, views here are my own, not necessarily the firm's, although I'll certainly touch on what we're doing. Um, I. Uh, I think I'll I'll try to keep this this short so we can get into the questions. But uh, I'll I'll talk about sort of because um, I'm not a regulator up here. Kind of where are my clients' questions are coming from and what my experiences out in the industry right now are. And I and I think kind of similar to what Bill said, the experience in this room is the comfort level with sort of blockchain technologies is all over the spectrum right now. It's a, it's a very new. Uh, technology on the market still, and um, you know we encounter um, folks who are everywhere from maybe read a, a, an article in the newspaper one time to sort of deep in the weeds technologists. But across that spectrum, uh, the the questions that that we get and where we're spending our time kind of fall on a couple common starting points. So I think I'll start with those. The the first one right out of the gates that we get over and over is what is this? So what is blockchain? What is DLT? How do I get started? Um, and I won't drain uh, all that content to you today, but I'll start with an analogy that has been really helpful kind of in, in my life with this. Um, and it harkens back to my roots. I grew up in the country, small town, maybe not the most polished, where it wasn't unusual to occasionally see somebody with an engine on a stand in their driveway. And, and that, that's something that speaks to me. So when somebody asks me what is blockchain, I always go back and think of this engine in some guy's driveway, because blockchain sitting by itself, these technologies aren't really a thing. They're an engine that just processes these transactions. And, and what that's actually going to do is going to become largely dependent on kind of what you put around it. And we use this as a starting point often when I'm talking about this because you can think about it as an engine. An engine thinking about that engine on a stand, if you hook it up, you put some gas in it, you start her up and it starts running, it's sitting on the stand and maybe it makes some cool noises and you impress your friends, but it's not really doing anything while it sits there. Not until you start putting the components around um, that engine to maybe use it as a generator, to put it into a car and start moving down the street. Maybe it goes into a helicopter or a train or all these different things that you can think about an internal combustion engine might do. Blockchain technologies conceptually are, are a very kind of similar concept. While the cryptocurrencies and the fintech are by far kind of the most prevalent that are out there, it, before even kind of diving in, talking to folks about what's this thing going to do, how is it going to impact their businesses, it's useful to think about it first as a starting point that these are not just one thing. Um, instead, it's really an engine that can empower or transform many different uses, applications, business types, industries, and that's kind of where I, I spend a lot of my time. Um, the, the second thing, and I, I hit it a little bit already, is that it's more than just Bitcoin. Um, and 
and if you're coming to this you know with your, your knowledge really driven around that I can assure you that you are not alone um, that for a lot of folks that really is the starting point and the exposure they've had is reading about Bitcoin cryptocurrencies and, and some of the fintech applications and really spend a lot of my time helping others unpack kind of what else this might mean um, and one of the big points on that is understanding the difference between kind of the permission networks and the, the non-permission networks. So Bitcoin, a lot of the crypto are by design sort of non-permissioned. If you have a computer and you're so inclined, you can go join that network. Um, for kind of commercial enterprises, a lot of the focus is moving to the permission networks, which means that you have some control over who's going to come into your Google document, um, to, to, to use Daniel's analogy, um, or your Google Excel file, um, that, that, that you, you've started with that gatekeeper function. And this is a lot more attractive to a lot of regulated industries because, as I think we all know up here, just because somebody has come with what might be a better mousetrap doesn't mean that regulators are going to stop regulating what is already kind of part of their purview. So it's spending time kind of going through the steps of kind of what is blockchain and what is it mean to me and then now how does that exist in my ecosystem so if I'm in a regulated industry or I'm thinking about putting this to use for a regulated activity how do I think about this technology both in terms of the regular regulatory compliance as it exists today and also thinking about where that may be moving kind of going forward so looking at it in terms of kind of where regulatory changes may be coming from um, thinking about it in terms of what regulatory uh, um, changes or developments may help empower this technology um, and also then just thinking about it outside of the regulatory world in terms of risk mitigation. Um, I'm a privacy cybersecurity uh, attorney by day so a lot of my kind of brain is, is wired around sort of risk mitigation. How am I thinking about the threats that are out there um, for my system and, and I'm talking to clients quite a bit around that as it relates to blockchain. Um, for instance, one of the big things, if you read about this anywhere, is about the security that's inherent to these networks because of the layers of cryptography, because of, of all the measures that are there. But again, to go back to the basics, you still have to not give somebody your password. You know, I was at a conference the other day where there was a security vendor handing out koozies um, that on it said, I drink because your password is password. Um, and, and that's, you know, still the, still the starting point here that kind of understanding kind of what is the technology, what's it very good at, and, you know, still where are, where are those challenges going to be that are similar to other things in your life. Um, the, and the final, just to, to wrap this up so we can get into the questions, it's kind of how do I get started? Um, talking to a lot of folks who are somewhere in this ecosystem, either starting out or kind of starting to move down that path is, okay, I'm looking at these networks or I've been approached to join a network or a consortium. It's, it's where do I go from here? And it's understanding how this technology really is a different thing than others they may have encountered. So kind of the old hub and spoke networks, the centralized or even the decentralized networks um, kind of that are very common today really have kind of a central point of control that not only controls kind of the validity of the data in it, but also allows it to have some flexibility sort of after the fact to make changes. You can put in new rules, you can do all that. Um, with with uh, DLT, that's a little bit different that a lot more of those decisions need to be front-loaded because there is no central authority, generally speaking. Um, the, the technology is 
by design are distributed, which means you really need to be a lot more thoughtful about kind of the rules of the road, if you will, up front. And that's not just how the network works, but also the participants' sort of relationships with each other. You know, as a participant in this network, what are your obligations to ensure that the data you're putting in is accurate, is correct? What if there's a mistake? How do we, as a network, kind of deal with that? What if I want to leave? What if I'm a bad actor and I have to leave? What happens to all the data that's been in the network? And then what are those interactions with the regulations that are out there? So we have GDPR in the EU, which has kind of had a major impact on this. What if somebody puts sort of prohibited information kind of legally or just culturally into the network? Kind of how do you cope with these things? And with this technology, it's much more important to think about those issues up front because it's they're harder to deal with on the back end than what maybe they are with some of the others that are out there. Um, and, and finally, the, the thing I'll wrap up on is the, the final point to think about, um, in some ways blockchain is still in the kind of the, the hype cycle, I think it's an old Gartner term, um, or as my, my dad always liked to say, when you have a nail, or when you have a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. Um, and, and with this technology, we're kind of getting through that phase of it where uh, you know, it's throwing it against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, and now kind of backing away from that and understanding where maybe this isn't the best tool um, and, and where maybe you're using a staggered approach or a hybrid approach or something like that. So um, uh, that, that's kind of uh, the very quick overview, and I, I'm saving you all. I didn't bring my, you know, 30-slide deck with me. Um, but, um, uh, again, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and happy to jump into some questions. Okay, excellent. Very helpful. Um, let's have a conversation amongst ourselves, or basically amongst the three of you, and then we'll turn over to the audience. I'm glad Matt ended where he ended, because that takes me to what was going to be my first question anyway. Uh, as, in, as is in his hammer analogy, uh, mine is that uh, we, we've done a series in the Schultz here on, on uh, emerging technologies, advanced technologies, and there is a flavor of the month syndrome to these things. You know, if something becomes uh, the subject of much uh, press speculation, much conversation. Everybody wants to get into it, whether it makes any sense or not. Uh, and at some point along the way, there has to be an injection of some note of realism. Uh, let me start with, anybody can respond, but let me start with Matt who, uh, to pick up where he, where he left off. Uh, first of all, can you mention a couple, or well, maybe several um, non-currency applications for, for uh, for blockchain, things that w where it would be useful in uh, business, in uh, well, I don't want to give anything away, but in, in people's lives. Uh, and then uh, for all of you, I'll move on and talk about what some of the challenges and limitations are. Matt? Sure. Um, the, outside of sort of fintech, the, the, the big use case or set of applications out there that's got a lot of interest right now is sort of within the supply chain context. So, um, you know, if, if you imagine, um, I think. IBM's got a couple commercials out there at this point with, you know, organic coffee, you know, so you know it, it was grown at exactly some elevation in a particular place by a particular farmer. And it's as that coffee bean moves from the farmer into the distributor, into the transportation sector, that there are sort of handshakes as, as this, this coffee moves along, and it's tracking those kind of within the blockchain, um, which is just kind of moving kind of the ownership of that, of that item. Um, 
there, there is a really, uh, I, I think, um, but bear in mind I'm a nerd, um, inter what I think is a very interesting application is a use case out there by a company called uh, Filament, um, who I have no relationship with other than I've read their white paper and am a fan of, of it. Um, that what they did with, with this technology, they built these little caps. I think they're about that big, and they sit on utility poles, and they put them to use in, I think, the Australian outback because the, the issue they were, they were working with is these power lines serve kind of very remote installations, mining camps, other things like that, where this was the only, only way to get the power out to them. And one of the things they, they dealt with was, you know, if there's a storm and it knocks down one of these poles, well, they've gone on for hundreds and hundreds of miles with literally nobody around. And the only way you can go find that pole is to put guys in hard hats into trucks and onto helicopters and start looking for it. So what this little cap does is it's essentially talking to its neighbor all the time. So it's a blockchain-based system, and it's got like a radio transmitter that's one pole talking to the next pole. And they're basically just checking back and forth. Are you okay? Yes. Are you okay? Yes and they have a little motion detector in them. So when one falls over, it says, I'm not okay, and it tells its neighbor, and if its neighbor's down to, they have like a radius they can get out to. Um, and instead of just keeping that transaction between the poles, there's some intelligence built into the system that it starts reporting up, up the line and to the utility, and then go out with a high level of precision and know this is the pole that went down, or these are the poles that went down, and can go straight to them. Um, the, the challenge there and why blockchain is really interesting for this is you can just imagine the volume of transactions of every pole along a line for hundreds of miles checking on their neighbor kind of constantly. And, and what the blockchain platform did was one, it, it ensured that nobody's sort of messing with that or, or a, a bad actor going in there and altering the data, but it's also handling it sort of in some very rudimentary technology without the utility having to constantly manage centrally. Um, and I think they, they're estimating the response time went to like a number of hours as opposed to a number of days, um, which if this is powering a hospital or a medical facility in a mining camp is a material difference. Um, so I think that highlights, it's, it's an interesting example because that's so completely um, removed from kind of a financial aspect, but it's still showing that this is really just an engine that's, that's handling these transactions of information. Um, outside of that there, I mean, we've seen healthcare, we've seen, um, the 3D printing ver verification, there, there's really just a, an array uh, of applications out there, but I think that's a, an interesting one to start with because of how far it is removed. I'm going to um, turn to Patrick in a minute, but just to add a, a, a data point to something that, that Matt said. Uh, one of the interesting things we found is uh, the usefulness of, of blockchain in uh, tracing um, um, global food products, and you know, uh, spoilage and uh, bacteria and things like this are, are always a problem. And of course, if something like that occurs and, and people end up getting food poisoning, one of the first things that the purveyor wants to do is try to trace the, the origin of the products back to see where it came from, to see that so that the public health authorities can do something about it, and to see who else would be affected by it. Uh, blockchain uh, can facilitate that. Uh, Walmart has been. Uh, experimenting with this, and in one in the case of one things they did, for example, the uh, the tracing time of of mangoes from the farm to Walmart uh, fell from trying to identify you know where your mango came from. The, tr the tracing time fell from six hours, eighteen days, and twenty six minutes before blockchain to two seconds with blockchain. That's the kind of thing that, that the technology can bring you. Um, it has its limitations, too, but first, Patrick. 
just wanted to share my favorite example of a, a successful blockchain business model, um, and it's, it's a company called Everledger, uh, based in London. Uh, they, what they do is uh, they register diamonds in their blockchain. Um, so they take, I don't know, I think 40 different um, measure points of the diamonds, of a diamond, and register it in their blockchain. And obviously, through that, you can track um, the owners of each diamond, you can track the source of the diamond, and so make sure is it is it a, a diamond from a legal source or is it a blood diamond, whatever um, can happen there. I think that's a very, very simple but elegant example of how blockchain can be used. There are lots of applications that have been uh, alluded to, healthcare, uh, record keeping, the IBM Maersk project that, that uh, Matt alluded to, which is a way of basically tracing traffic as it as it moves about. Uh, Customs and Border Patrol here in the United States is uh, looking at ways that they can use blockchain to uh, better maintain uh, their records and better tra trace products as they enter the country. There's a whole host of things going on. Uh, at the same time, the technology is not without, uh, not without challenges uh, and, and also limitations. I think, as Matt said, it's particularly useful when you have large numbers of people and large numbers of transactions. Um, if I'm a small business and I buy my mangoes from one place and, you know, I sell at the neighborhood store, this may not be for me. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's not just a scale phenomenon. It's, it's based in part on, on the nature of what, of what you do and the nature of your supply chain. Uh, there are other limitations as well, and maybe we can ask the panel to comment on some of those if anybody wants to volunteer. Yeah, Daniel. Yeah, ha happy to jump in. And I mean, I just want to come back to one last, you know, use case. Again, that, that just a flag is that that idea of of market infrastructure and, and regulatory reporting. I mean, I think that that could be a very interesting place to look. But coming back to limitations and this notion around the hype cycle. I mean, I would I would start with, and that's why we talked about that spectrum, and then. Quite honestly, I think a problem is conflation of terminology. I mean, a lot of things are explained as being blockchain, and then that can be really confusing because are you talking about the open public blockchains like we were talking about where there's a cryptocurrency, or are you talking about, you know, the, the, the idea of, uh, of using a permissioned or private system to help with supply chain tracking? And there's value to uh, across that spectrum, but they're very, very different in real-world applications. So... I think number one is making sure that we're clear in terminology because otherwise it's confusing and whenever there's confusion, there are risks, right, in the, in the market. And certainly there are risks to investors who, who don't understand exactly what it is they're getting into. Um, you know, on the, on the private uh, permission side, I think that there's a, a lot of real benefit, as we've been talking about, the efficiency gains that can come from essentially moving to, like, a, a database 2.0 systems that are interoperable, that can speak to each other, that allow information to move amongst multiple participants. But bear in mind, there's, there's typically some degree of centrality still there. I mean, you gave the Walmart example. It's Walmart's supply chain. So it's not this open public system. So... I think that there's kind of an evolutionary benefit that's going to come from a lot of those technologies. Moving over to kind of the, the public open blockchain or crypto side of the world, um, you know, look, there, there are a lot of challenges in this space. I mean, certainly whenever there's something new that's confusing, it's easy to, you know, it's easy to deploy various types of fraudulent schemes on the public. And that's something that's obviously been a, a, big, a big topic. 
Um, Patrick talked a little bit about ICOs, maybe you'll say more about that, but certainly there's been a lot of activity from the SEC uh, in, in the U.S., and then the CFTC has had to bring kind of fraud in, uh, uh, cases against certain projects that it's almost generous to really call them a crypto project or a blockchain pro project. A lot of it is just pump and dump schemes that are pretty traditional in, in, in many uh, respects, but just invoking this kind of cloak of, of innovation um, uh, to, to perpetrate it. You know, the only other thing I would, I would caution is I think that a lot of these technologies, especially the public blockchains, it's still very early days. It's early uh, in the evolution. There are certainly scalability challenges. There are cost challenges. A lot of the the cryptocurrencies that were originally intended to serve as a medium of exchange haven't quite lived up yet to that purpose. A lot of them are being at least traded, it seems, more as stores of value than as an actual medium of exchange. Um, and then the last point that, that we've heard that I think is a very smart observation is that there's a cost to decentralization. Like when we talked about using an economic incentive, so you have you know, thousands of miners or validators using their computers around the world to maintain a ledger, there is a cost to that system. So you know, the idea that a public blockchain is going to cure everything and solve everything may be a, a, a misunderstanding of, of where the technology could be applied. There may be situations where there is a value to that decentralization, but there may be others where it's not. And I think it's still early days to really flesh that out. Um, but I flag it because there are, you know, there's, there's been a, a trend of saying, well, blockchain can really be used in everything. And it's like, may, maybe, but maybe there are systems where centrality does actually have efficiency benefits. For, for the ignorant, can you take a minute and elaborate on what a pump and dump scheme is and how it's, blockchain is susceptible to it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's the notion of, of essentially uh, uh, you, you purport to have a project or some type of an investment scheme, and there may be those that try to pump it up, promote it. And the one thing about crypto that, that is, makes it a very modern thing is, is how tied it is to social media and to blogs and to Twitter, and it's not difficult for people to organize a small group and then say, hey, we've got the next best, you know, big thing. It's this new coin. It's the Gorefine coin. And, you know, they go ahead and pump it up and promote it as being, you know, transformational, bids up the value. The, the guys who did that get out first, and then eventually the rest of it craters. And, and you know, there, there's, there's evidence of that type of activity around some of the, uh, the ICOs. There are some popular press reports talking about you know, the percentages of white papers that are fraudulent or plagiarized or wholesale copying and pasting, you know, stock images from the web saying, here's our CEO and we're doing X, Y, Z. So there are, there, are, there are significant risks there. And it's something that, again, at CFTC, through our Office of Customer Education and Outreach, we try to put out a, a fair amount of information and educational materials to make sure that people are asking tough questions before they make decisions. So as you said, it doesn't solve all problems. I guess would be it doesn't solve all problems. If you have somebody determined to commit fraud, uh, there are still opportunities to do so in this technology. I guess um, I want to move on to, to, to regulation. Before we do that, maybe we can talk about one specific issue that's come up in the Bitcoin context, which is the enormous amount of energy it consumes. Uh, is that a problem that is um, Bitcoin specific? Uh, or is that wrong? Uh, or, or is it a general problem for uh, all blockchain technologies? Um, that, that, that's something you can read uh, on a regular basis in the, in the newspapers uh, the, uh, that uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin uh, consumes like the same amount of energy like 
name any country you want, Argentina, Denmark, um, Ireland whatever, was the one. Ireland. Um, <clears throat> I think what, if, what is worth mentioning is Bitcoin is, is the mother of all blockchains. It was like the first real use case of, of, of that technology introduced approximately 10 years ago. And it was not designed for that amount of users and transactions um, it, it has to, to cope with it to, uh, as of today. And <clears throat> I think it's, it's kind of a special feature to that Bitcoin blockchain technology that it uses quite an amount of, um, of energy. Uh, Daniel mentioned there is, a, there is a kind of a consensus system in that technology that makes sure that everybody has the same transactions in his version of, of the ledger. And there are some mathematical uh, calculations behind that. And they need that kind of amount of energy. Uh, to, to, to do that calculation, you, you need that energy. And that also means that all copies of the Bitcoin blockchains are designed the same way and are quite energy consuming. But um, what we observe in the market is that in the newer generations of blockchain technology, there are different ways to, to reach that consensus or to design that consensus mechanism, uh, and they do not need that amount of energy anymore. It's a different design, a different uh, way to, to, to reach that consensus. So it's, okay. I think it's something that is very um, unique to, especially to, to Bitcoin, because it's, it's spread it's around the, the world. It's the way it's structured, yeah. right. Okay, let's, we have two regulators with us. Um, Let's uh, turn for, to, the, to uh, some regula regulatory questions. Uh, the first one, though, let's talk for a minute, if, if we can, about standards. Uh, that meaning uh, uh, sort of private sector standards development. Is this an area where that is ripe for standard development? Do we need a blockchain ISO, uh, or is that uh, not a good idea? Anybody? Okay. <laughs> or nobody. I, <laughs> Um, uh, personally, I think it, it, it's a very good idea to have uh, certain uh, standards uh, for these pu public public um, uh, blockchains. Um, I think any any corporation, uh, any enterprise that, that is using a permissioned um, blockchain within its uh, network of companies, whatever, um, can do whatever it wants. But for all the blockchains that um, everybody can access, everybody can uh, participate in, I think it would be uh, a good thing to have a global ISO standard or whatever the standard would be. Um, why? Uh, simply because it would protect the user in a certain way to, to give a certain assurance that, that it's not a scam, that that, uh, that that ledger really cannot be changed. Uh, things like that could be solved through this, I think. Dan, do you want to comment? Yeah, I'll take a, I'll take a slightly different angle or, or aspect of your question. I mean, and I'm going to step back and just briefly mention the regulatory framework in the U.S. So I mentioned in my opening remarks that CFTC does not regulate the, the spot markets, the cash markets of trading. So the underlying uh, cryptocurrency exchanges in the U.S. are actually largely regulated at a state level. Um, many states have state money transmitter laws and licenses that require registration of those uh, of those platforms and exchanges. Um, some states have specifically tailored 
virtual currency or crypto asset uh, licensing frameworks like New York and now Wyoming have, have uh, different approaches to that. So trading platforms have to satisfy a number of different state requirements, but there isn't necessarily kind of an overarching federal framework for the actual trading activity that may be taking place on platforms. And so that's why many people will point to this kind of being still an early stage of development of, of the industry, as well as from a policy and regulatory perspective, it's an area that, that uh, we're looking at as well. Um, what that means, though, is that there's there's likely opportunity, and our chairman has, has expressed a view that there's opportunity now for you know, best practices to emerge amongst especially the, the, the spot trading platforms or the underlying exchanges. Um, and, and so there could be opportunity as policymakers do look at this space for those types of best practices to emerge that could serve as, as models or examples for policymakers as well. So I would just kind of look at it from that angle for well, first a technical standard. Okay, I don't want to be uh, too U.S.-centric here because Heather will shoot me if we, don't, if we don't talk about Europe, which we will in a minute. But let's pursue the U.S. issue for a minute. Here in the United States, you've got, as you pointed out, state regulators. You've got a bunch of federal regulators dealing with different aspects of this or different places where it would appear, uh, even I mean, outside, the, outside the fintech. Uh, sector. I think you've got other federal regulators that are going to get involved in this, and you've got some federal agencies that want to use the technology for their own purposes. Um, and you also, I think, have the, the, the issue of first mover advantage. If a big state like New York or California decides it wants to regulate in a particular way, uh, and maybe this is the best question for Dan, what, uh, does that in, in turn, does that force everybody to follow? Uh, number one, and number two, does that imply that there ought to be, rather than state regulation, maybe this is an area that's ripe for, for you know, a single national federal regulation? Uh, and then, of course, the hardest question, uh, which is a little unfair for you because you're in one of the agencies, is who should do that? So, all easy questions. Yeah, I thought that you said softball questions you were going to be asking us. But, uh, um, I, I mean, look, I, a few thoughts on that. I mean, we have a system of federalism. So there are many activities that, that are regulated at the state level, and sometimes there's overlay of federal law that, that's applied on top. And, you know, look, I, I always say there's pros and cons to all types of systems. I mean, what we have with the current framework is that, yes, states could take different views and different approaches, which I suppose on the one hand, you, you would argue, well, you get to see the, the implications and, and maybe you learn from kind of that sandbox, if you will, amongst states, how they structure their regimes and figure out what works well, what doesn't work well, and maybe other states adopt. Um, so that's one, one angle. There's also, there are efforts at the state level to think about harmonizing state requirements. There are things like uniform laws or model laws that can be adopted by states, and there have been efforts uh, to do that in this space. Uh, we have said, and our, our, our chairman has pointed out, this is an area worth looking at from a, from a federal policymaker perspective in that you know, again, many states might be regulating the exchanges as uh, money transmitters. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, pure trading activity that takes place. Um, we do not, CFTC does not have that type of direct oversight authority uh, over the underlying market. You know, it's going to be, I think, ultimately, policymakers may have suggestions and recommendations. I mean, it's an area that Congress has been talking about looking at, you know, what the right ultimate framework looks like is not for me to say. Um, uh, but, you know, it's an area that obviously there's conversation taking place and, again, pros and cons to different, different frameworks. Okay. Let me ask essentially the same question to, to Patrick about Europe. Liechtenstein is not in the EU, but the 800-pound gorilla is, is next door, literally. 
Uh, and this is inherently a cross-border technology. Uh, how do you interface with the EU? How do you address the same problem in the European context? Did one of the questions uh, discussed at, uh, at the EU level at the moment is especially uh, in terms of the use cases of, of blockchain technology, what of these tokens, cryptocurrencies, et cetera, falls under the financial market law, the European financial market law, and what is out of scope there? Um, and I think there um, are many, many uh, working groups on a European level uh, looking into that question. Uh, so far, no answer to that question. But uh, we, we expect the European Securities and Market Authority to, to issue an opinion on this uh, during this year, hopefully, and that will help to harmonize on a European level um, the different approaches to, re to, to regulate um, ICOs, tokens, and cryptocurrencies. But generally spoken, I think Liechtenstein took a very proactive approach now. Uh, we are a front runner. <laughs> Uh, in, in, uh, in, in blockchain uh, regulation. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we, we already um, uh, were invited to present our blockchain law to, to the European Commission uh, because I think they are desperately looking for a, a approach for blockchain regulation. First mover advantage. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so uh, related to that, and then fair warning, it's your turn next, audience. Uh, how do you, uh, you know, the EU and the United States have, have taken different positions on a number of these issues, privacy being a particular one, uh, and the digital information uh, issues are another one. Uh, do you see, do you foresee this becoming a big issue between the United States and, and Europe and taking different approaches? Or is Liechtenstein going to be the reconciler of the two? Uh, I, I, had, I had the pleasure to meet some, some regulators uh, a few days ago uh, from all over the world to, to discuss um, exactly the same topics um, we're discussing here. And there are actually two points um, that uh, cause some headache. That's, uh, first of all, uh, data and privacy protection. Um, I don't know if you're aware that the European Union uh, released a new a regulation, uh, uh, data privacy um, regulation, and that is completely not um, compatible to, to, to blockchain technology because there is always some information publicly available in a blockchain, in an open blockchain. And uh, so th that, that's one of the issues. Um, and uh, I, I can imagine that there, that could cause issues between the, the US and, and Europe, depending where the provider or the, the developer of a blockchain technology is located. And the second thing that is uh, discussed between the regulators is, uh, again, this qualification thing. What, what is it in the end? Is it a security? Is all of this a security or not? Are there some real utility tokens we can put out of scope of the financial market law? And there we have different approaches. Okay, let's turn it now to the audience. If you have a question, please, one, uh, identify yourself. Two, questions, please, no rants. Uh, and we'll go with the gentleman in the blue shirt first. And microphones are coming around. Hi, Doug Brooks, um, new person with blockchain and blockchain intelligence partners is a group that we're putting together. Um, I'm a historian. I don't know much about this stuff, but I can see that things are changing fast. My question is, uh, what is blockchain going to make uh, redundant or obsolete first? 
what are, what are we seeing that uh, regulations or technologies that are being pushed aside now by what we're getting out of blockchain? Who wants to take that? Anybody? Somebody has to. <laughs> I'll, Matt? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll jump in first. Um, I don't think there's one answer, and I, I think in, in part I'm, I'm punting, but um, to be perfectly frank. But, but, but the answer is going to really depend on kind of what types of applications you're thinking about and also where these technologies are going in. Um, because there there is an infrastructure challenge here that that blockchain technologies sort of speaking very broadly have moved incredibly quickly in places where there's not an entrenched technology or other solution um, in place where they're solving a problem so um, in parts of the of the world that are less developed there have been giant strides made in in banking or in banking related services using this technology because there there has not been kind of the, the historic kind of iteration of, of infrastructure that's gone in to, to put it in place. I think I was uh, reading one this morning I think in Papua New Guinea where they're using a combination of like a SIM card and a thumbprint with a blockchain backed you know, terminal for people in remote regions who were previously unbanked to be able to interact with the banking structure. Um, you know, there, there's, there was nothing to go obsolete because there just was nothing. Um, in, in other places, it, it's, it, it's slower to move because there's an entrenchment issue. So I, I think that it, the, my formal answer is still it depends. But, but I think in how you consider that question, it's going to be very, very dependent on where you're looking. Okay, here in the first row. Um, Chris McRae, Norman McRae Foundation. So taking the supply chain example, which could be coffee, but it could be something else, uh, do we all, if, if, if there's new value being created across the value chain, do we know who's capturing that new value in some of these cases? And in particular, if you wanted to use something like coffee so as to get more value for the end farmers and you know, the kind of USAID applications, do you have to get into it early? Is it a first comers advantage? Or, or how does one work out who's going to get the value from those kinds of examples? I'm happy to, to, to take this one uh, as well. Um, part of that's just going to be how the relationships are built up. For, for a lot of these implementations, they are not public blockchains. They are in existing kind of supply chain relationships, whether that's sort of a, a one-to-many or a many-to-many. -to, -many. to use the Walmart example, you know, it's Walmart sort of branching out through its supply chain, um, but there's also another one where it's a consortium with some of the largest food companies in, in America. Um, a, a lot of it, it's going to be sort of driven through what those existing relationships are, at least as it exists right now. So, for instance, if we have a company that wants to incentivize its producers to kind of be good stewards into this into this network, that there may be financial incentives there. Um, the, the flip side is, is also <coughs> going to be true that it could be um, sort of from the, the founder of the, the chain, so the, the, the large company or whoever is the ultimate controller of these goods, to force the issue out. If you want to be in our supply chain and get the value that you drive from being a member of that supply chain, we are going to require you to do this. Um, so in the commercial context, it, it's going to be where the incentives are. Um, but the idea is that 
that there is value created kind of throughout the supply chain with this that you have sort of more transparency, um, you're lowering other infrastructure and oversight potentially. So, so in the end, the idea is sort of a, a rising tide lifts all, lifts all ships. Um, thinking about it kind of on a more macro level, if these were to get expanded out to kind of a, a larger network where everybody's sort of playing in the same sandbox, then, then maybe there are some rules that are established. But, but as it stands, a lot of the supply chain right now are sort of in these permission private networks that are, that are controlled, and then that's all gonna be governed through largely the contractual relationships that are in place. Okay, here in the second row. It's coming. <clears throat> Uh, my name is Bin Lu. I was working in Deutsche Bank, Hong Kong Investment Bank, and anti-financial crime professional. So it's exactly what we are uh, talking about every day. Uh, so to regulators, I just wonder what the what are the uh, in conversations going on between the banking uh, investment bank uh, with the regulators on this issue, and particularly in, e uh, in Europe as community and in U.S. probably very different. Uh, and also uh, to math, actually early this year uh, there. Ironically, there are two very there were two very big cyber uh, cyber security attacks to uh, blockchain companies in Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, they are uh, very smart people, but they are so vulnerable to cyber attacks. So the two questions to uh, three of you. Thank you. Very brief. Yes, we are talking to the banks. Um, they're very interested in the topic uh, and exploring the opportunities uh, in, in all different areas of, of banking. Yeah, okay. I mean, oh, sorry. Oh, oh sorry. Oh, just, just quickly, in terms of the U.S. perspective, I mean, same, same thing. Look, I mean, the, the, the anti-money laundering financial crimes rules are, are critical, right? And so that's something that the bank regulators certainly, when they're talking about retail banking, will be in constant contact or looking at the implications of some of these technologies. Um, you know, and I, I would also point out that we have FSOC, the, you know, FSOC has created a digital asset working group where this issue of uh, illicit use is also something that's going to be paramount. So there's also good coordination between regulators on that type of a topic. And, and just to touch on the, the cybersecurity point, uh, I'm hesitant to say all, but at least the vast majority of the attacks on kind of the cryptocurrency exchanges and, and wallets and other things at this point have not been at the blockchain networks themselves. The, the attacks have been on um, organizations, networks, systems that are interacting at the edges of those. So it's it's the your password is password problem that, that they're going after the vulnerability. We in cybersecurity it's often referred to this as the castle walls issue. Doesn't matter how tall and strong your castle walls are if you leave the door open. Um, that that these are these are the challenges that are being worked out which are not unique to this technology. Okay, let's go the woman right here in the middle. Oh. We're, we're, we're from the same organization. Bait and switch. All right, go ahead. So, Mary Saunders with the American National Standards Institute. Just a comment first, and I do have a question in answer to Bill Reinch's question. There is an ISO TC technical committee on blockchain and distributed ledger technologies, 307. It's the it's 10 standards under development. If I, on pri personal identifiable information, security risks, privacy, reference architecture, are those the core areas that will be necessary to actually broaden the use of blockchain platforms beyond what are now the proprietary platforms. So that's my question. Right now, at this stage of the technology, you have in the permissioned area, largely, you have pro several proprietary platforms. And what you've, 
I mean, they're wonderful. But what you've got is technology lock-in, so that you, Maersk has a partnership with IBM, Walmart has a partnership also with IBM, um, and then you're locked into that particular platform. Um, what do you see as the evolution of moving away from proprietary platforms and allowing more, you know, more competition, I guess, amongst platforms? So, so uh, you know, one of the big challenges that's raised about, you know, adoption of the new technology is, is fear of actually if you are a first mover but you pick the wrong standard or the wrong technology, it's like the Betamax VHS, uh, you, you know, issue, that would be a real sunk cost. And, and so many are afraid of making the, the, taking the leap because of that issue. So interoperability of systems is one of the big challenges. And, you know, so I think that the, the, the standards work that's going on um, is really important. You know, I know that you probably all think a lot about how, when's the right time, though, to create different types of standards, because you also don't want to prematurely set standards that then you know, kind of cap where innovation goes or direct where innovation goes. So that's that's a real issue. Um, you know, and, and I think it just ties a, a bigger observation, and I thought Matthew was kind of pointing this out really well, and I've, I've talked about kind of the permissioned and how it has aspects of public blockchain, but really at the end of the day, what's kind of fascinating to think about is that what Bitcoin did is it unlocked, for whatever reason, public imagination and creativity about how the next generation of database systems could be built to be more efficient. And you, you, know, you were talking about um, certain, certain areas where we already have existing technology infrastructure, it's harder to replace it. I think in part because people are afraid of picking the wrong technology. In other areas, they're saying, look, the, the, the kind of bespoke scotch tape bubblegum systems that we currently have working, work. So if I am at a you know, large financial institution and I have a lot of various divisions and we've built a system that at least seems to work relatively well right now, are we going to take the plunge to enter into this new type of infrastructure that has to be, that we know is going to survive as well? And we have to also make sure others join the system because there's this, there's this collective action issue there. So I think that these are, this kind of ties to the, 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 the early days uh, question and, and ultimately, like, what, what does it take for it to scale? What does it take for people to have confidence technology is here to last? And does it also prove, does it have a value proposition um, that the actors who adopt it know it's worth it at the end of the day? It's better than the existing infrastructure or system. Could you give me, give me your business card afterwards, will you? I want to follow up with you on something different. Back there. Yes, with your hand up. Good morning. Hi, I'm Chris Troy from USAID Power Africa. And from where? USAID Power Africa. So our goal is to hopefully potentially utilize blockchain to help us with the energy industry within Africa. So for, for some context, um, a lot of the uh, utilities are, 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 are in very poor shape because the payment systems are very, very weak because you have tremendous losses. So one of the things that we're looking at is if we could potentially I guess tokenize some of these utilities so that uh, payment systems could be much more robust. Um, this could be a, a better way of making the utilities more healthy, and then th therefore, if they're more healthy, then you can you can you can create more generation plants because now you have a, a have, have payments coming through, so it's a lot more healthy of a financial system. So I guess a question for you guys is, um, if our position is to create the enabling environment for these systems to actually be created and flourish, what are some of the regulations we might need to consider to get these going, or how do we get started, basically? Um, I'm, I'm happy to jump in, uh, just to pull back the veil. My, my 
background as an attorney, I'm actually an energy regulatory attorney. So, and I, I'll give you the five dollars afterwards um, for um, that. Uh, there, there, there are some really interesting things that are going on in this space. So there, there's a there, there's a proof of concept that's out there. The Brooklyn Microgrid Project is is one of the big ones, which is going after um, kind of in a, a closed unit microtransactions between neighbors to use the power off of each other's solar panels, kind of during the day, where you can kind of on a, on a very micro level set transactional prices that may be above or below what the utility would provide, and then the grid as a whole still interacts with the utility to sort of make up the delta. Um, but it's a proof of concept and it's, it's, it's out there and it, it's working. So there are some models showing that blockchain can do these things kind of speaking very broadly. Um, one, of, one of the other areas that I think is very interesting to look at are kind of some of the microgrid um, applications that are out there, um, especially in kind of the developing world where there are some, uh, for lack of a better term, pay-for-play models where you're, you're paying for the energy you're consuming sort of on, a, on, on an upfront basis. So you're kind of paying and then eating down your credits. Uh, to speak very broadly, and, and I, I think, and I've, I've seen some white papers and some other things, and, and talked to some folks that you kind of there's some convergence between these ideas that are that are going on out there, um, as well as looking the at the blockchain and other technology-based payment um, systems that are going in place in. In, in countries or markets that are maybe less developed or ha don't have the same infrastructure in place that the U.S. or some, some other um, Western countries do that, that is being dis displaced. So I, I think there's, there's not kind of a direction that I would point you, but there are some interesting applications that sort of seem to be converging around some of this idea of um, sort of hyper-local or, or micro-payments in showing that that works, that the, the microgrid and microgrid anymore can be a pretty large area, um, that there are some payment and kind of some interoperability uh, ideas out there that are kind of emerging and evolving, um, as well as looking at kind of some of these, these payment, um, whether that's blockchain-based or some of the mobile, mobile ones as models that are existing out in kind of the, the world that doesn't have the same banking infrastructure that we do. Okay, we've got time for one more on back 40. The gentleman in the white hair there. Uh... Okay, thanks. I've got, I've got the white hair. Um, I, my name's Terry Hill. I'm with the eMERGE Alliance. But um, my question is, I, I hear a lot of discussion on the Hill about privacy, uh, you know, uh, Facebook, etc. What role do you think blockchain could play in allowing me to own my own data? and sell it back. Anybody want to take that? So uh, th this is a hot topic that's out there. I'll, I'll start that, that kind of giving kind of, uh, it's a provenance issue, right? Your identity and establishing your provenance that you, um, you know, gave somebody permission to, to, to show you an ad or um, to use your name or likeness or however you want to kind of expand this out, um, it, it's an interesting idea that's out there. Um, somebody I saw the other day, there was a, it's probably clickbait, I didn't click on it. You know, it's, is blockchain going to, you know, remake banner ads on the internet? Uh, kind of with this idea that, you know, I'm me and I've established that, so if I click on this, there's some value that's either coming back to me or at least you can establish that I gave you permission to show this to me. 
Um, and it's out there in terms of how how far, how fast that's going to run. That, that's an interesting interesting question. But I will see that kind of provenance issues lend themselves to the technology very broadly. Um, we, we touched on the diamond issue over here in the art world. Um, provenance is for art insurance is one of the interesting early use cases, as well as kind of uh, some other kind of high value commodities that have certain characteristics. So provenance is definitely a direction the technology is trending. Um, identity sort of broadly is, is you know, an area this is trending and that those two may converge would not be, a, it wouldn't be a surprise. So uh, just one, one yeah. uh, oh, sorry, were you going to, uh, just one additional area that I think is interesting. Definitely digital ID is intertwined in this conversation. Um, but I would add another area that, that's an interesting one to look at is medical records, for example, right? So and this goes back to this idea of the technology helping to create better overall systems and infrastructure. I mean, everyone's got medical records out there at disparate doctor's offices or hospitals. I mean, if you could link up to some type of a digital ID so you could get control over your medical records and be able to kind of move them where you want them to go, um, there seems to be good sense to that notion. Now, could you extrapolate it further out and think about how this could be used in other ways? Sure. I mean, I think that I think it's really early, but I think that this is kind of the next generation of computer system infrastructure in, in that sense, um, just more efficient. And it makes sense. Computers are connected. You should be able to move information in a more seamless way. The issue that we largely have today is systems are not interoperable, so it's very difficult to, to have them talk to each other and move information according to the same format and standard. So the, that's why, again, the standards work in that area is, I think, really important. Okay, I think uh, the time has come. Uh, we didn't get to everybody. I think uh, probably our panelists will hang around for a few minutes, I hope. If, so if you didn't get a chance to ask your question publicly, come on up uh, and ask him one-on-one. -on -one. For all of you, uh, thank you very much, and please stay tuned to other CSI activities in this, uh, in this area. And thanks again to the Amb Ambassador Yeager and the Embassy of Liechtenstein for supporting this.